Hey guys. Hi, and welcome to Mass Murder, a true crime self-care podcast. We're your hostesses, Avery and Nicole, and we're here to tell you about two things, masks and murder. First, we're going to dive into a true crime story, and then we'll follow it up with a little feel-good self-care session where we try out a new face mask and tell you what we think about it. But before we get to the story, just a quick reminder that we are not experts, so please don't take our comments as hard facts. We did our best to research everything and, of course, added in our little personal flair that stems from both of our true crime obsessions. Now, this week, I'm the one that found the story, and it's because I just listened to the Dating Game Killer podcast by Wondery. And then after that, I saw the 2020 episode on Hulu and figured, heck, let's jump on this bandwagon. So this week, surprise! We will be looking into the Rania Kala, a.k.a. the Dating Game Killer. He committed five murders in California between 1977 and 1979. He got his name from the time that Rodney actually appeared on the famous 60s and 70s TV show, The Dating Game. The idea behind the show, in case you haven't seen it, is that one woman gets to ask three eligible bachelors who are hidden behind the screen various questions to help her pick which one of them she would like to go on a date with. Once she picks a bachelor number one, two, or three, they reveal the winning contestant. But before we get into deep about who Rodney becomes, let's go back and talk about his background. Rodney James Acala was born August 23rd, 1943 in San Antonio, Texas, to parents Raul and Anna Maria. His given name was Rodrigo Jacques Acala Buku, I believe. And that, well, Buku's a funny ass name, but that's also (laughs) a mouthful. Yes, yeah, no, um, don't you worry. I originally looked up how to say his full name, and it's been a while, so (laughs) hopefully I got it right. We'll go with it. Well, facts. So he had two sisters and one brother. In 1951, his father moved the family to Mexico. Three years later, Raul abandoned them. The CDC says 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. Kids that grow up without a father in their life are more more likely to act out. The effects from this can range from being aggressive, depression, having low self-esteem, poor performance in school, and being more likely to be incarcerated and using drugs. The feeling of abandonment leaves the child unable to trust, which leads to an increase of recklessness. This really opens up the paths that a kid can go down. Many successful criminals are highly intelligent, but most of them never finish high school. Now, all of this is actually really interesting to me because I know quite a few people who grew up in homes without a father, myself included, and we all turned out to be great people. Not to like toot my own horn, but like toot mother fucking toot. <laughs> toot toot. <laughs> uh, I also, <laughs> I'm also really interested to know if there's facts like this about children who grow up in motherless homes or if there's like, like if there's even any data about it or if it's. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I didn't see anything about that in the article I found, but I mean, you do have to think about the quote that we're actually using is out of all children that have a behavior disorder. So it's just, it's like backing into it. It's not out of all people that have had a fatherless childhood, you know? True. So it's yeah. like, that could be 10% or 5%. The other 15%. Of, right. It could yeah. be a small percentage, but there. On, on that side, it's a large percentage. Mm. Mm-hmm. But it is, a, um, it is a good point, and I should have looked up the mother thing, just because it's interesting, but... It's interesting, but not pertinent. (laughs) Yeah. Next time. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) 
1954, when Rodney was about 11, his mother moved them to L.A. Those close to the family said their home life was everything someone would want, a loving mother, siblings, and friends. Generally, Rodney was a bright young kid that seemed to have a good life. He went to Catholic school, and his older brother went on to West Point. In 1961, Rodney decided to join the Army, where he served as a clerk. Rodney ended up having a nervous breakdown and went AWOL a few times. At one point, he hitchhiked from Fort Bragg in North Carolina to his mother's house across the country, which seems unnecessary, but regardless. In 1964, he was diagnosed by a military psychiatrist with antisocial personality disorder and was honorably discharged from the Army. Antisocial personality disorder, or ASPD, is characterized by a long pattern of disregarding or violating the rights of others. A weak or non-existent conscience is often, often apparent, as well as a history of legal problems or impulsive and aggressive behavior. Okay. I've got a question, and you probably don't have the answer because you're not in the military. <laughs> but my question is, if he went AWOL multiple times... Like, I know AWOL stands for absent without leave. Yes. But, like, if he does that more than once, how is he honorably discharged? I don't know. Like, I mean, if you think about it, though, like, all of these stories where someone gets discharged back in the 70s mm-hmm. or the 60s, or just, you know, not currently or recently, yeah. the, the rules are a little gray. I mean, we all know. We've, <laughs> we've all heard it. We've looked at it in stories that they protect their own. Mm-hmm. So true. as long as he didn't do anything too bad, they didn't want to like disgrace him. I'm sure. Yeah, it's not like he killed anybody while he was in the military. Right. They didn't know how far it would go. Fair. All right. Just but, I wanted to just point that out. Yeah. Like, again, not wrong. But let's get on to the weird shit. Yes. Now newly out of the army, he went to New York. While he was there, he assaulted a girl in the street, hitting her in the head with a coke bottle. Luckily, she was actually able to run away and escaped any potential outcome. Rodney decided to move across the country back to L.A., where he applies to UCLA's undergrad undergrad program as a photography major and would later graduate as such. Now, in 1968, Rodney committed his first known major crime. Eight-year-old Tally Shapiro was living in Hotel Chateau Marmont, in California. So Tally was living with her family because their home had burnt down in a fire. And she was walking to school when a man pulled over any car and offered her a ride. She responded that she doesn't talk to strangers. Good job. And he said, I'm not a stranger. I'm a friend of your parents. And that he wanted to show her a picture that she knew she would like. Having grown up being taught to respect her elders, Tally got into his car. A good Samaritan, let's just call him James, actually witnessed Tally get into this car and thought, hmm, that doesn't look right. So he figured he would follow the car just in case. Quote unquote, on the way to school, this unknown driver casually mentioned that he wanted to stop by his place because that's where the picture was that he wanted to show Tally. In her 2020 interview, Tally said that this is when she knew she was in trouble. She said that she wanted, really wanted to jump out of the car, but that she was just too scared. The driver pulled into the parking lot of his place and told Tally that they're going to go in real quick just to see the picture, and he wouldn't make her late to school. Our good Samaritan James saw the man guide the girl towards an apartment and knew in his gut that something was wrong. He called the police and asked them to come check it out, that there was a potential kidnapping. Officer Chris 
Camacho. Is that how you say that? Yeah. Camacho. Exactly. All right. Uh, Officer Chris Camacho Jr. was nearby when the call came through for an officer to check out the situation. When he arrived, he requested backup, then knocked on the front door that was pointed out by James. He heard someone scrambling around inside, and then a man parted the curtains and apologized for his delay, saying that he was in the shower. But Officer Camacho could tell he was lying. The dude wasn't wet, and his hair was bone dry. So he demanded that the man open the door and let him in. The suspect responded to let him just go put his pants back on. The officer agreed, but waited probably about five seconds before kicking in the door, going with his gut that something was wrong. When he got inside, he saw a little girl on the ground in the kitchen with a metal bar across her neck and her clothes and shoes off to the side with blood everywhere. The officer quickly found himself in an either-or situation. Either run after this skeezy guy who seemed to be gone or stay and help the little girl. In his interview on 2020, Officer Camacho says that he couldn't just leave this little girl laying there like that, so he chose to stay and to help her. He took the bar off her throat and miraculously, Tally started gasping for air. He started to yell for the other officer, his backup, who was covering the back of the building, but the dude misheard him and thought that Chris was calling for help, so he left his post and came running around to the front of the building. It was unfortunately later confirmed that the suspect escaped through the back entrance. Upon investigation of the apartment and after Tally was sent to the hospital, officers found a UCLA ID that showed the suspect's name was Rodney Alcala. On top of that, they also found hundreds of pictures of young boys and girls in various stages of undress. Tally was in a coma for 32 days, but amazingly, she pulled through, in case you didn't pick that up. I was talking about her 2020 interview. <laughs> yeah, small spoiler, but a good one. <laughs> uh, after several months of rehab, Tally was able to leave the hospital and try to return to her normal life. It didn't take long for her parents to decide that they just couldn't stay in California after all of that trauma. So they packed up and moved to Mexico, trying to find a way to rebuild their lives. At this time, police had no idea where Rodney was. They spoke to his classmates and his friends at UCLA to try and learn more about him. But as is typical in these types of situations, everyone said that these investigators had to be crazy. Rodney was a great guy and would never do anything to hurt anybody. They had to have the wrong guy. So the question remained, what reason would this 25-year-old college student have to hurt an innocent 8-year-old girl so viciously? Rodney was missing for three years, and during this time, the FBI got involved and put him on the top 10 most wanted list. Authorities later discovered that in 1968, Rodney moved to New York under the name John Berger, where he enrolled in NYU's arts program. Cornelia Creeley was a 23-year-old stewardess that grew up in Brooklyn. One day, her mom couldn't get, could not get a hold of her, so she called her daughter's boyfriend, Leon Borstein. He told her that he didn't think she needed to worry about it, and after work, he would go over to the apartment that she shared with a few other stewardesses and just check on her. That afternoon, he went to her place, but when he knocked repeatedly, there was no response. He promptly called the cops, and the police broke into a back window. Uh, well, and I'm confused here. Can they do that without probable cause? Like, at this point, they're knocking on the door, and there's just no answer. Could, couldn't it just be, like, no one's home? There's no signs of anything being amiss, as far as I can tell, right? Yeah, I, you're probably right. That's probably not legal anymore, but... Anymore. 
I like the it. The 60s. So. <laughs> Keep forgetting. Long time ago. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that, I don't know, because like the mom was worried, maybe she could technically give them permission to take that extra step or something like that. But yes, it doesn't seem legal, but they were trying to like check on her, not just like get into her house. So I don't know. Maybe the rules are just different when you're trying to make sure someone's okay. I have no idea. Yeah. Not, Please not officers, a clue. let us know. Yeah. When they came back, they let Leon know that she was found dead inside. Cornelia had been bl- brutally strangled with nylon stockings and they found bite marks on her breast. It was later confirmed that she had also been raped. Cornelia had been pretty new to the apartment building and no one had seen anything. Meaning the case went cold for the next three years. In August 1971, two campers in New Hampshire went down a dirt road to the post office. It started to rain, so the campers ran inside to take cover. While inside, they looked around the post office, just killing time. They noticed the FBI's top 10 most wanted list up on the bulletin board. One of the flyers had a picture that looked like Mr. Berger, their camp counselor. They went back to the camp and reported it to another counselor. He told them not to say anything and to act completely normal, but he would go down to the post office and look at the flyer for himself. Upon seeing the face of his coworker on the most wanted list, he immediately called the police. On August 12th, the FBI went to New Hampshire and picked up Rodney so that he could face a proper trial in LA for his crimes against Holly. Officers said that during his interview, he came off calm and introverted, but you could see his wheels turning, like he was always trying to figure out the next move. Playing mental chess. Absolutely. So officers contacted Tally's family about testifying in Rodney's trial, but they declined. And because police didn't have their primary witness, they couldn't convict him of rape and attempted murder. Their hands were kind of forced, and they had to offer Rodney a plea deal where they only charged him with assault. Rodney received an indeterminate sentence, one year to life, in a California state prison, which meant that he would have yearly parole board hearings and that the board would decide if he had been rehabilitated or not. As soon as the inmate demonstrated enough evidence of rehabilitation, they could be released. Well, Rodney is a sociopath, and sociopaths are very persuasive. After serving just 34 months, Rodney was released. It is reported that he was a model prisoner, and he had displayed very good behavior. Less than two months after his release, Rodney was rearrested for assaulting a 13-year-old girl who had accepted what she thought would be a ride to school. I'm sensing a pattern here. Yes, you would be correct. <laughs> like my little like commentary as if I've never read this I before. Do. <laughs> so a park ranger saw <laughs> a park ranger actually saw the the duo smoking weed out on the cliffs and confronted them, thinking that this was an odd scenario. A young adult man with a little girl out in the middle of nowhere. Also they're smoking. But once again, Rodney was paroled after serving two years of another indeterminate sentence. During his probation, Rodney, a- Rodney asked his parole officer if he could leave the state for a vacation. Shockingly, and ignoring the fact that he was a repeat offender, making him a flight risk, parole officer said, sure, why not? And so off to New York, Rodney went yet again. Which is crazy. I mean, that's got to just be luck, right? That can't have been a normal thing. No, he just lucked out with like a lazy parole officer. 
I'm convinced. Then in July of 1977, New York City was dealing with an influx of crime, which included the son of Sam. (laughs) While visiting the city, Rodney got back into his photography. He asked people of all ages on the street if he could take pictures of them. Ellen Hoover was one of those women that agreed. Uh, They got to talking and actually hit it off. Ellen was an heiress and the daughter of a nightclub owner, and she had grown up in Beverly Hills. Well, July 13th and 14th of 1977, New York City experienced a blackout, pushing crime through the roof. Then, on July 15th, it was determined that Ellen had gone missing. Her friends and family hadn't been able to locate her, and once she was officially declared a missing person, police went to search her apartment where they found a note on her calendar saying that she was to meet someone named John Berger. Dun, dun, dun. Now police have a suspect to look for. Rodney Akala went back to L.A. and got a job with the L.A. Times as a typesetter. Now, think about this. He applied under his own name. He was on the top 10 most wanted list and had already served two jail sentences. But don't worry, he still got the job. So they clearly didn't do background checks like they do now. No, not even a little bit. (laughs) To be alive. What a time. Well, and people at the paper labeled him as artsy. Perhaps a little strange because he kept bringing in nude photos to share with coworkers, but generally he was just unique. I'm sorry. Right? I just, I have so much I want to say, but like at the same time, I'm also speechless. Yeah, like, it makes no sense. And actually, so one coworker stated, quote, I thought it was weird, but I was young. I didn't know anything. When I asked why he took the photos, he said their moms asked him to. I remember the girls were naked, end quote. Um, I'm going to go with, I don't care how young you are. You have to realize that's bullshit. Like, like what? Oh, don't worry, my mom just asked for this strange man to take my naked photo as a young child, sure. Yeah. What mom is like, hey, can you come take child porn of my kid? Like, she's real cute, right? No. So strange, yes. Obviously a lie, but I mean, I guess different times, I don't know. It was the 70s, man. Everyone was getting high and didn't give a fuck. Yeah. Well, back on the East Coast... Police were able to connect the names Rodney Akala and John Berger, and luckily they knew where he was. He was eventually questioned about Ellen's disappearance. Rodney admitted to seeing her, but said that he had just dropped her off at home and hadn't seen her since. Unfortunately, since there wasn't any evidence to charge with him with, he was let go. About a year after her disappearance, Ellen's skeleton was found in Rockefeller State Park with her clothes found nearby. In 1977, there was a quick succession of murders that occurred in California. On November 10th, 1977, 18-year-old Jill Barcom was found on the side of a dirt road in California, bent over, half-naked, with ligatures on her neck and face completely unrecognizable. The issue of finding the right murderer at this time in history is that there were so many. Due to this, her murder was at first thought to be the work of the Hillside Strangler. When that didn't end up fitting, the case just went cold. Georgia Wickstead, a 27-year-old nurse living in Malibu, one day just did not show up for work, so a welfare check was requested. Police found the screen of her window removed and blood everywhere in the apartment. Now there's a reason to break in. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That one gives you some cause. Well, Georgia had been raped and brutally murdered. The level of viciousness in her attack was absolutely astounding. 
Her body was found on the floor, kind of spread out. There was a palm print found on the headboard of her bed, but at the time, there just wasn't a suspect to compare it to. In 1978, Charlotte Lamb, 31, had called some friends to go out one evening, but they just didn't feel up for it. The next day, Charlotte was found raped and murdered in an apartment complex that she had absolutely no connection to. Her body was actually posed so that her arms were behind her back, basically exposing her breast even more. The careful posing of each of these women's bodies shows that he wasn't afraid and that he was really trying to convey this message to the police saying, I am here, remember me. Rodney is over time exhibiting more and more traits of a narcissistic sociopath as he is flaunting more of his victims and trying to show off what he can really do for the cops. So what else does Rodney do? Oh, it's to go on the dating game where, of course, he will win, as he always does. The show started in 1965, but the vibe changed a little bit in the 70s. It was kind of meant to push the envelope and was full of sexual innuendos. Just like with modern reality TV shows, to get on, you have to go through an interview process. One of the producers said that he thought Rodney was a no-freaking-way because there was just something weird about him. Oh, his spidey senses were tingling. No way would people believe that this guy was genuine. But then another producer basically said that he was hot and people are going to love him. So Rodney became the striking, confident bachelor number one. I'm sorry, that just sounds like people like doing any type of casting whatsoever. Like, he's hot, whatever. Every reality TV show you watch now. How did, oh how did you get on this? Like, I, does anybody hear the words coming out of your mouth? Oh, wait, you're pretty. <laughs> That's how it works. Oh, truth. Uh, so on the 2020 episode, a physiologist states that all of this is pretty much just part of Rodney's personalities. personality disorder. He wanted and felt like he deserved attention. He would do anything to get it. So the, the bachelorette on the show apparently did find Rodney's answers very charming. Probably the most widely known was when she asked the men, I'm going to eat you. What food are you? Oh, oh God, this is literally where my head just went. <laughs> Rodney's answer was, I'm called the banana and I look really good. Peel me. Yeah. So <laughs> sexual. So, so sexual, but also like, peel me. Really? <laughs> I mean, he was a creep, whatever. Yeah. So with answers like that, Rodney's number was picked and he earned the first date. But when the bachelorette met her choice, she actually said that she got bad vibes from him. And the next day she called the show and said that she couldn't go on a date with him. And they told her that it was fine if she didn't want to go. I'm just so glad she listened to her gut before she became the next victim. I mean, she could have easily just gone along with it and like, who knows what would have happened. Well, I won this free date. I might as well go. Yeah. Oh, I feel bad. No. He's no. creepy. Don't do it. Yeah. Then on June 13th, 1979, Jill Parentio, a 21-year-old college student and data entry worker, went to a baseball game and was never heard from again. Police found her in her home, naked with a pillow under her back, pushing her breasts forward. They recognized some similar qualities of other female victims from the past few years, but didn't have enough evidence to bring in the perp. At this time, Rodney was living at home with his mother, 
but he had a separate entrance, so she wasn't always aware of when he was coming or going. He also hadn't stopped his passion with his photography. He was sending some of his nude photos to New York, where they appeared in pornography publications. Well, at least he got famous for what he really wanted to be for. I mean. Yeah. And I'm assuming all the pictures he sent in were of of age people. No, none of his, like, kitty porn. Oh, my God. I mean, God, I hope. I mean, I feel like that's always been a thing that's considered wrong, no matter what era it is. Yeah. But, you know, there are those gray lines. The blurred and, lines. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, yes, there's blurred <laughs> lines. Ah. <laughs> uh. So one day, Rodney heads to the beach where he meets 17-year-old Lori Wirtz, who is roller skating in her bikini with a girlfriend. He asks if he can take some pictures, and she agrees. While they're talking, Rodney keeps asking her personal questions and trying to get her to come with him and leave her friend behind. She denies his advances, and he actually just gives up and leaves. Lori notices that as he's driving away, he heads towards Huntington Beach. Now, this is important to note because it shows that Rodney was actually actively hunting for his victims. 12-year-old Robin Samso is at Huntington Beach that very same day, hanging out with a friend. Rodney spots these young ladies and approaches them, laying on the charm real thick. You are so beautiful, you have to let me take pictures of you, blah, blah, blah. Robin's friend Bridget showed no interest in him at all, so Rodney takes it up a notch with Robin and starts to put his hand on her leg. At this point, Bridget says, no, this just isn't right. An adult sees what, hap- what is happening and comes over to ask what he's doing there. The questioning scares Rodney off, and he runs away like a little coward. Around 4 p.m., the girls head back to Bridget's house because Robin has to get home and go to dance class. Robin's running late, so Bridget offers to let her borrow her bike just to help her get to ballet a little faster. About 5 p.m., Bridget gets a phone call inquiring about where Robin is. She never made it to class. When the police asked her in detail what happened that day, Bridget was able to help provide a sketch of the man that had talked to them at the beach. It was indeed Rodney Alcala. About 12 days later, a park ranger finds human remains. The body had been picked clean by animals, meaning that learning much from the body is about impossible. But it is later confirmed that it was Robin. I'm assuming with dental records? Yeah, I mean, it's got to be. I mean, that's literally the only way at this point, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. On July 24th, 1979, police get a warrant for Rodney's arrest. They go into Rodney's house to look around and notice a receipt from a storage locker. When they're able to gain access to the unit in Seattle, Washington, they find thousands of pictures of people of all ages and many pairs of earrings, which must have been the trophies from his victims. One of those pairs of earrings was last seen being worn by Robin. In 1980, Rodney went on trial for Robin's murder. Her mother attended, but she didn't come alone. She had brought a pistol with her so she could seek the ultimate revenge. Now, remember, this is before metal detectors were in courthouses. Oh, the good old days. Yeah. (laughs) See, that's what this whole story is. It's all just like, old school. Learn from your mistakes. Robin's mother said that she was sitting in the courtroom and had her hand on the gun when she all of a sudden heard her daughter's voice saying, don't do it. And so, at the last minute, she changed her mind and left the gun in her purse. Jurors deliberated for less than five hours, returning a guilty verdict. Rodney received life in prison in San Quentin. Uh, In 1984, the verdict was actually appealed and reversed because, quote, the jurors weren't clearly aware of his previous sexual assaults. 
end quote. Kind of seems like a dangerous game, but I don't know. Let's see how it works out. Fast forward to 1986, Rodney was retried and received another guilty verdict, and this time he received a death sentence. In 2001, his sentence was again overturned because Rodney's attorney didn't provide a strong enough defense. At least if the case had to be retried, this time around they would have DNA testing available, which didn't exist in the previous trials. So, prosecutor Matt Murphy went back to the evidence collected and tested the earrings that were last seen on Robin. While preparing their third prosecution in 2003, California investigators learned that Rodney's DNA matched semen left at the rape-murder scenes of two women in L.A. Additional evidence, including that for yet another cold case, provided a DNA match in 2004, which led to Rodney's indictment for the murders of four additional women. Jill Barcom, a New York runaway, found, quote, rolled up like a ball in Los, Angel- in, uh, Los Angeles Ravine in 1977. Georgia Wickstead bludgeoned in her Malibu apartment in 1977. Charlotte Lamb raped, strangled, and left in the laundry room of an El Segundo apartment complex in 1978. And Jill Parento killed in her Burbank apartment in 1979. Another pair of earrings that was found in Rodney's Seattle storage locker had residue that matched Charlotte's DNA. During his incarceration between the second and third trials, Rodney wrote and self-published a book called You, the Jury, in which he claimed innocence in Robin's case and suggested a different suspect. He also filed two lawsuits against the California penal system for a slip-and-fall incident and for refusing to provide him a low-fat diet. Like, oh my god, what a fucking whiny baby. You slipped and fell and you don't want to be fat. Get over here. Yeah, it's like the poshest old person that you've ever met. <laughs> yeah. In 2003, prosecutors entered a motion to join the charges for Robin's case with those of the four newly discovered victims. Jill, Charlotte, Georgia, and Jill. Ronnie's attorneys contested it as one of them explained, quote, If you're a juror and you hear one murder case, you may be able to have a reasonable doubt, but it's very hard to say you have reasonable doubt on all five, especially when four of the five aren't alleged by eyewitnesses but are proven by DNA matches, end quote. In 2006, the California Supreme Court ruled in the prosecution's favor. Then in early 2010, Rodney decided to represent himself in his third trial on the five joined charges. What a freaking narcissist. Seriously. And because he was defending himself, he was able to question the witnesses, one of them, which was Robin's mother. I just cannot imagine that poor woman having to go through that trial three times. That and like not to mention also having to be berated by her child's killer. Like that's fucking awful. No one should ever have to endure that. No. Like it yes, it shouldn't even be a possibility. But agreed. So Rodney also took the stand in his own defense and for five hours played the role of both interrogator and witness, asking himself questions, addressing at, uh, sorry, it just makes me laugh, addressing himself as Mr. Alcala in a deeper than normal voice and then answering. What? what no, that's creepy. Ew, it's so creepy. It's so weird. I just, I can't imagine being in that courtroom and watching that happen. 
and not have like your mouth just agape. Oh my God. I was literally just going to say, I feel like my mouth would just be hanging open, like in shock at what was happening. Yeah. And there's no way you can't be weirded out by that. No way at all. But during this bizarre self-questioning and answering session that he, he told the jurors often in a rambling monotone that he was at Knott's, Knott's Berry Farm applying for a job as a photographer at the time Robin was kidnapped. He then showed the jury a portion of his 1978 appearance on The Dating Game in an attempt to prove that the earrings found in his Seattle locker were his, not Robin's. Jed Mills, the actor who competed against Rodney on the show, told a reporter that the earrings or that earrings were not yet a socially acceptable accessory for men in 1978. Quote, I had never seen a man with an earring in his ear. I would have noticed them on him, end quote. Rodney made no real attempt to dispute the four additional charges other than to assert that he could not remember killing any of the women. A surprise witness during the penalty phase of the trial was Talia Shapiro, Rodney's first known victim. Richard Rappaport, a psychiatrist paid by Rodney and the only defense witness, testified that borderline personality disorder could explain Rodney's claims and that he had no memory of committing the murders. The prosecutor argued that Rodney was a sexual predator predator who knew that he was doing wrong and just didn't care as I, part of his hmm. oh i was also i was gonna say i also like that his psych the psychiatrist who is his witness only says that that it could explain rodney's claims not that he definitively had borderline personality and that was the cause oh that's true that's a good point so semantics but yeah what it's a, it's all in the details Devil's the devil's in the details. Ah, twinsies. We're adorable. All right. Uh, as part of his closing argument, he played the Arlo Guthrie song, Alice's Restaurant, in which the protagonist tells a psychiatrist that he wants to kill. After less than two days' deliberation, the jury convicted him on all five counts of first-degree murder. I'm sorry, let's just go back to that. He played a song as his closing argument. Seems legit. Just so strange. It's also a song about wanting to kill. Like, <laughs> yeah, you think that would go against him, yeah. Yeah. You really think that's going to help your case? I mean, maybe it's all an insanity play. Maybe. Sure, we'll go with that. I mean, that he does look crazy, so. Yeah, he was talking to himself in two different voices. Yeah, so maybe that was really his motive. Actually, yeah, that wouldn't would make sense. Mm-hmm. Anyhow. In March 2010, Rodney was sentenced to death for a third time. That same month, the Huntington Beach, California, and New York City Police Departments released 120 of Rodney's photographs via a website looking for the public, the public's help in identifying these people. Ooh, public's help. Very hard for me, apparently. The hope was that they would be able to determine if any of the women and children he photographed were additional victims. Approximately 900 Additional photos could not be made public, police said, because they were just too sexually explicit. In the first few weeks, police reported that approximately 21 women had come forward identifying themselves, and at least six families said they believed they recognized loved ones who had disappeared years ago and were never found. That's heartbreaking. So prior to any... Go ahead. Sorry. I was like, I guess it could be a little closure. Not that you know, but at least you could maybe know. Yeah. just trying to make it slightly positive because yes, it's awful. Looking for an answer. 
Yeah. Yeah. Any answer is better than no answer, maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So prior to any of the photos being directly connected to missing persons, Rodney was brought to New York City in 2013 to be tried for the deaths of Ellen, the nightclub heiress, and Cornelia, the stewardess. Rodney pled guilty and received 25 years, which was the highest sentence he could receive at the time. But later that year, one of Rodney's pictures was able to be tied to a missing person. A boy came along the site and shared it with his mom, knowing that she had a sister that had gone missing years ago. She recognized a <laughs> she recognized a picture of her sister and decided to submit her DNA to the CODIS system, which was part of the request. A few officers had been assigned some cold cases, and they decided to upload the DNA from the case to the system just to see if that would come up with some more information. With her sister's recently submitted DNA, the police were able to indeed confirm that the woman in the photo was her sister, Christine Thornton, whose body was found in Wyoming in 1982. Christine Ruth Thornton, who went by Chris, was 27 in 1977. She was pregnant by her boyfriend, and they decided to go to Montana and pan for gold as a fun little getaway. They had a fight somewhere along the trip, and her boyfriend left her alone on the side of the road. This was the last time that she was ever seen. And I can only imagine how fucking guilty that guy must have felt. Oh, he must have felt awful. I think being the last person to see someone alive would make you feel awful, period. I mean, even if it was a stranger, if you just were told that you were the last person to see them, yeah. you'd feel guilty like you should have done something, even though like it's completely out of your control and you didn't do it. Yeah. I mean, but in this instance, like they got in a fight and he left her. So like, He's got to be having, like, survivor's guilt, feeling like it's his fault. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I can't imagine he doesn't. But also, like, why did you leave your pregnant girlfriend on the side of the road in the middle of the desert? Because he's a douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they probably had quite the fight. Yeah. I can only imagine. Uh, no, I can't. During the investigation, police unfortunately told the family that Chris was an adult and didn't take the case seriously. Five years later, bones were found out in the desert, but they weren't able to connect the remains to anyone, and the case went cold. At this point, police thought that they had enough to charge him, but they wanted to go and speak to Rodney first. They went to the prison and showed him a photo of the area that Chris was found, and he admitted that he had been there, actually saying, that's my area, in an interview. Ooh. Which, yeah, what, what does that's my area mean? How many people... Did you take somewhere to make it your area? Exactly. Nefarious. Police then showed Rodney the picture of Chris on his motorcycle, and he started to run his finger over her photo and was tapping on it. And we can literally only assume that this is him, like, reliving his experience with her and reminiscing on it. He did admit to knowing her, even though he denied doing anything to her. With all of this, police were able to charge him with first-degree murder in Wyoming. Rodney's health wasn't good at this point, and he wasn't able to travel without great expense, so the police decided to forego the trial, knowing that he was already in the place that he deserved. Rodney's exact death toll is still unknown. Some authorities believe that he murdered around 50 people. Others think that it could be as many as a total of 130. Which is crazy, 130. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm sorry, 50 people on the on the small end of things. It's still a lot. A ton of people. Like, Yeah. 
<sighs> anyway, sorry. No, I'm with you. Today, 77-year-old Rodney Alcala is incarcerated at California State Prison, where he will remain until his execution date, which is yet to be set. I'm sorry. Fuck this guy. Just fucking kill him. <laughs> Put him out of his misery. As of September 2019, 109 of the original photos remain posted online, and police continue to solicit the public's help with further identifications. And I think we found the link. We're going to go ahead and include it in our social post, in our story notes. And I think that's kind of enough of that. Should we go ahead? Enough of Rodney. Yeah. Should we go ahead and wind down a little? Yes. Absolutely. Let's do it. So, Avery, what mask are we doing tonight? So this week, we're going to get a little, I'm sorry, I wanted to say freaky. That doesn't make any sense. Freaky freaky. Uh, <laughs> I guess a, maybe a little superhero-y, because that's what I felt like. I definitely felt like Iron Man. Yeah, um, but we're going to do The Gold Mask by Sephora, which if you think of gold, like I don't think you're thinking of it quite enough. This one is a foil mask. It is gold. Yes. It's a limited edition foil mask which is to help support the skin's natural radiance. It's ultra moisturizing, so it helps with dryness and dullness, and is a skin perfecter, so it helps with blemishes and uneven texture. But now if you're... Hmm? I was going to say, I was just going to segue. I was going to go, but what type of skin is it good for? <laughs> well, that, that works out lovely. Um, it's actually for everyone. So I love it when they're like, you know, I mean, I guess it depends on the wording for like whatever site you're looking at. But they're like, it's type, yeah, like the skin types it's good for. And then it literally just lists every type of skin. We're like, so everyone. I feel yep. like you could have just said everyone, but okay. You could save on typing. Right? Yeah. Well, in case you don't know what we're referring to, you can use it if you have normal, oily combination, or dry skin. If you have skin, you can if use it. If you have it. skin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you're not a skeleton. <laughs> oh. All right. Also, so the- I was going to say, also, in case you guys haven't figured it out by now, it's a sheet mask and we already did it. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I probably should have led with that. It's yes, fine. we already did it because um, there was no talking in that mask. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in the reviews. Um, but, yes, you're all welcome for doing this in advance because that would have been really boring content, to be honest. Um, okay. Well, let's dive into the ingredients. Yes, please. So the first one we're going to look at is glycerin. It's a natural a natural compound derived from vegetable oil, oils or animal fats, which sounds gross, but it's okay. It's a clear, colorless, colorless, what is up with my wording? Odorless and syrupy liquid with a sweet taste, which I'm wondering if it's like part of the scent, but I have no idea. Glycerin is a humicant. I think that's correct. Humicant? Sorry if I'm just saying that wrong. It's a type of moisturizing agent that pulls water out of the outer layer of your skin from deeper levels of your skin and the air. According to a 2016 study, glycerin is the, quote, most effective humicant. But if you want to compare it to some things you might have actually heard of, <laughs> just in case, um, it's very similar to glycolic acid, hyaluronic acid, and but- Oh man, I don't know why I'm electing to say all these words. Butylene glycol. 
Good job. All right, let's get on to one that I can say with conviction. Honey is our second ingredient. Honey is known to have microbial, microbial properties that help fight skin infections and heal wounds. It also has anti-inflammatory properties that help with issues like acne and psoriasis. Some older studies have shown that honey had anti-aging properties and claim that it helps to stop wrinkles from forming. Now, um, like Nicole said, we've already tried this. It's a sheet mask. We all know the drill. Stick it on your face. Um, we're gonna leave it on for 15 minutes or you should leave it on for 15 minutes and then just rub those extra juices in your skin, get all of the benefits. Mm -hmm. Did you set a timer? I did. Look at you go. A little overachiever, you. I'm trying. Mm -hmm. I like it. Do we want to grade the masks first or do we want to yeah. talk some self-care first? Sure. Let's just go ahead and do the mask. Mm. I'm going to give it a B. Okay. It was, I mean, it's a sheet mask. I felt, I didn't feel that the the holes were super tiny. It had little flappies on like the edges of the nose and the edges of like where your cheekbones would be. So it was a little easier to like warm to your face, I guess. Yeah. Um, there were plenty of juices. I have extras that I'm going to be putting on my neck when we are finished here. Um, I don't know. I felt like the same, I feel like the same issues happen for a lot of sheet masks for me. Like, they dry up really quick around my nose and mouth, and then they stop, like, sticking to my face, which I find yeah. most irritating. Yeah. I mean, sheet masks are their own brand of a challenge, I guess. Yeah. But they are really easy. They're so, super, like, pros and cons. Yeah. I also felt like, um, I mean, like, you looked super glowy after you did yours, after you took it off. You looked, you did. Oh, thank you. And it must be my lighting. Oh, do you have your ring light on? No, God, I should remember that it's over there. <laughs> um, but no, I just like. I hope that I looked as glowy as you, and I'm gonna tell myself I did. I mean, I like, think your skin looks really glowy, but I mean, yes, us looking through like a computer screen at each other, it's yeah. a little hard to tell. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just, I'm going to give it a B. Like I felt moisturized. I didn't feel like super sticky or gross or anything. But I also said it wasn't like, oh my God, this is the best mask I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you on a lot of those points. I, I think it was easy. Um, I thought the color of it was fun. I've never done like a foil mask that's that oh, intense. Yes. The color was so much fun. I felt like a sexy Iron Man. Okay, so it's funny you say that. I definitely walked out of the bathroom and was like, I'm a superhero. So. <laughs> I love it. Did you it's did you say that to Rich? Please tell me you did. Good. I absolutely did. Yes, he, because there's no one else around. Ebby wouldn't respond to me. Well, did he, I want to know, did he laugh at you or did he just give you his Richard look? Oh, no, he laughed, but it also <laughs> took him a minute because he was like on his phone and then he looked up and then, then I think he was trying not to laugh at me because <laughs> I didn't tell him I was going to go do a mask. He just came out and had a gold Sur face. Surprise! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Mm -hmm. uh. um, my biggest issue is that that mask is small. Like it didn't even, I don't have a ginormous head or anything and it didn't go all the way 
I mean, I have a big forehead, so there's that, but it, like, it barely got to the end of my chin. Yeah, it was just along the edges of my chin. That's a good point. It was like yeah. barely there. Right. And like the eye holes were really small. I think I got some of the juices like in my eye. That's the worst. Yeah, I was like burning a little while it was on. And um, the mouth hole, like you couldn't say a word. You cannot open your mouth in the slightest. I mean, when we first got on here, we're like, oh, you hear me? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) exactly. You can't talk. So um, I'm not thrilled about that. I do feel really nice. Like my skin feels nice. Yeah. It doesn't feel sticky, but it feels like there's a a healthy residue. Bouncy. Yeah. So I appreciate that. So while I would actually give this a good grade normally, I'm frustrated with the size of it because come on, it's the simplest of all of the features. It's Mm -hmm. the sheet mask itself. Well, it's gold. So. <laughs> okay, I'm not trying to give it brownie points. So I'm going a C because okay. I think they can do better. Okay. So Assassin Sephora. Assassin at Sephora. So overall, we're going to go what? C plus, B minus? Yep. Somewhere in that range? Mm-hmm. Somewhere in that range. There's limited edition, so don't feel like you're missing out because you probably can't find it anymore, anyways. I didn't know that when I bought I it. I actually did because I Googled it. Um, you can get it at JCPenney still, I think. I don't know if it's still, but at one point you could get it at JCPenney. Okay, well, now that we've sold it, because everyone wants to go try this mask, you can find it at JCPenney. Potentially. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> not not a guarantee, just the potential spot. Yeah. Oh, God. So, do you want to kick off the, the self-care sesh? Um. So I don't have a ton of things to chat about. I think my um, personal, uh, I don't know, interesting point is that our um, construction is finally done on the front of our house. So no more banging and hammering and just clean up and mess. So that's exciting. And now it's like the part of beautification. So it's making it functional and pretty. So it's it's the exciting part. I like it. I like it. And then I guess I have another thing. Um, I got a Peloton, which I'm very excited about. I've only thought about it forever, but found a ridiculously good deal. So I just jumped on it. And it is funny because I don't love cycling. I really don't. But I'm sorry. I- a couple of years ago, didn't we go to Soul Cycle for your birthday? Yeah, but that's like the vibe. And also, I wanted to like sweat my butt off so I wouldn't feel bad about the brunch we went to after. Yeah. There. So it's cycling's always a nice idea until you're like in you're in the seat and then you just start immediately regretting all of your decisions. I feel like that's, that's how I feel. All workouts though. Oh, I don't think so. I think there's something special about cycling. I wonder if it's because you're actually like clipped in. And your butt hurts your butt. And it hurts your butt. But no matter what, like I'm not a I'm not great at cycling because you know you're supposed to like stay on the beat. I'm oh. just not good at that yet. I'm not, I would not be good at it because I am not good at beats and rhythm. And you've seen me dance. <laughs> <laughs> but overall, I've only had it for a couple of days and I've only ridden it twice, but it's exciting and fun and different. And I'm thrilled to not be just doing like yoga and body weight classes like I do and have been doing for over a year now. No. So it's nice to mix it up, yeah. especially because I can't run. 
because it hurts my, well, all of my joints in my spine. Because you're broken. Because I'm broken. So I need something that can get me that intense level of cardio consistently. Yeah. No. So. That's, that's uh, awesome. I'm super excited for you. Yeah. So those are just like brags. <laughs> I'm just like, you know, showing off that I'm bougie. Yeah, I'm really just feeling myself right now. No, good for you, girl. No, I mean, you got a Peloton. I started running again. Mm-hmm. Because you can. Because I can't. I mean, it hurts like shit, but I don't give I mean, I think I just need new shoes. I think once I get new shoes, I'll be fine. But now I'm just starting to run again. I And the weather is perfect for it right God, now. Today was so beautiful. Yeah, no, yeah. the weather is finally turning around so that it doesn't hurt to breathe when I run because when it's mm-hmm. super cold, I I refuse to run outside because I literally cannot breathe. It hurts. Yeah, I actually always thought you were insane for doing that because I definitely do not run outside when it's cold because yeah, it hurts your lungs and yeah. I already am not happy about it. Why would I like make it worse on myself? Well, prior to COVID, I would do my winter runs at the gym on the treadmill and then just like walk over and do some weights afterwards. Right. But I haven't been to a gym since COVID. And I'm like, A, dying. Like, so I obviously wasn't running in the winter and kind of slacked off on my weights and stuff because, you know, COVID. Right. But I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm interested in looking at, because you can get the, the like, um, they're like treadmills with, that aren't treadmills. They're just like the little flat ones. Oh, yeah, like the ones you can, like, put, excuse me, um, you put, like, under your couch or something. Yeah. Yeah. Those, look, they're, like, I mean, they're only, like, $500. I might ask for one for Christmas or something. Yeah, that'd be a great gift idea. I've always wondered if those, like, really work. Well, so I I did, too, and then I was looking at something that Ashley Flowers from Crime Junkie posted, and I can't remember if it was, like, an Instagram story, if it was, like, something she posted on, like, TikTok, but it was her using one of those while also like wor- working oh like making a um a walking desk yeah and she like yeah. she like raved about it and I was like oh let me look at this yeah those sound nice in theory but I just don't think I could actually like read and type and do all those things while walking like if I had meetings sure yeah I feel like if I had one of those I could put it like in my living room in between my coffee table and my tv and just like watch a really cool action movie that's like very like boom 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 go 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 because that's where I used to run in the winter at the gym was in the cinema room and they like nine times out of ten would have like an awesome action movie on and I'd be like yeah my adrenaline's pumping I'm gonna go I'm gonna go this is a great run yeah I'm fighting with you let's go we gotta run the the cops are chasing us go go (laughs) or like one of my favorite movies to watch was like the Fast and the Furious when they were like driving their cars really fast. I was like, oh, me too, me too, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Ditto. Oh my God. Oh, that's enough. That's enough. No more. (laughs) That's enough embarrassing stuff about me. (laughs) No, I forgot about the cinema rooms. Oh. I like those. Yeah. Uh, It's been a long time since I've been to a gym, but especially, I mean, I used to go to the same gym you did, so been a long time since I've been there. I miss it. One day, vaccines are rolling out. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll be able to get a vaccine. Maybe one day. Mm-hmm. 
And we're all getting them slowly but surely. Mm-hmm. Any vaccine is a good vaccine. Yes, the be- best vaccine for you is the one that's offered to you. Exactly. Uh. Right in the veins. I guess it's in the arm, but still. Uh, uh, uh. Hit me. <laughs> uh, anyway. I also, I went shopping the other day, and I am on a house dress kick. I now own four house dresses. I'm super excited. They're so comfortable. Oh, lady. (laughs) I am. I told my mom, I was like, mom, I bought more house dresses. She was like, um, you know, it's, you're going to be able to go out soon. And I was like, can I not be comfortable in my house, Anita? Yeah, they're called pajamas, mom. Yeah, she was like, oh, I just figured you'd be naked all the time. <laughs> I said, and I, I I, said, you know, honestly, I'm not naked as much as I thought I would be. And she said, well, it's because you're on the ground floor. And I think that's a legitimate answer. Like, I if know. I was up on the second floor, right now, the sidewalk's right there. Right. I, and I don't think that's wrong, but... At the same time, I mean, even when you're on a different floor, that doesn't mean people can't see in your apartment. But I feel like you're less, you're less cognizant of it, though. Oh, God. But for anybody doing the face mask, the timer did just go off. So go ahead and take it off, rub in all the extra juices, and just Enjoy feel, your dewy skin. Yes, feel glowy and dewy and moisturized. And Yeah, I guess since... That's the timer, and should we just go ahead and yeah say that's all for this week? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have much else to really harp on. Just weird. the fact that everyone needs to follow us on social and leave us a re- re- well, as I say, leave us a review only if it's nice. But you know, I guess you could leave us a regular review, no matter what you want to say. No, it has to be nice. <laughs> yes, and, five stars, uh, nice reviews. Send us your emails. Podcast at gmail.com. Um, we're still open to a virtual happy hour if anyone wants to join us. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very funny. Everyone should enjoy it. In case you didn't already know. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll be in good moods, I promise. We will. <laughs> Aren't we always? Yeah, most of the time. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's all for this week. Take Take care care of yourselves. Sources for this week include biography.com, wikipedia.org, 2020, season 43, episode 9, The Dating Game Killer, allprodad.com, healthline.com, and medicalnewstoday.com. Okay, thanks. Bye.